The piece discussed in today's episode contains a swear word. Please proceed at your own risk. Small boy found a cat when his mum wasn't home. After school, he'd been sitting alone on the swings, trying to win at Ninja King when some kids showed. He kept his eyes glued to his phone. Hey, Lona, what makes that? Small boy didn't answer, didn't glance up. He kept quiet, stared down, but they didn't stop and the other boys were laughing. Don't you have any friends? Little Lona, little Larry. What's that shit you're wearing? Bet he stole it. And he started to glare, couldn't help himself, stood up, Mum, Dad got it, me swear. It was the worst thing he could have done. Now they knew that he cared and you knew that he'd slipped up. The kid flipped up, the phone up out of his hands and it smacked down, cracked down on the ground. The kid shrieked and his eyes pricked and his face went redder and his eyes felt wetter and they shouted, cry baby, cry baby. Hello and welcome to Classical Music Now, the podcast by No Dice Collective. I am your host, Joe Chesterman March. And wow, what a month it's been. I mean, obviously there's the whole virus thing, but we launched our podcast. We had the first three episodes up and you guys, you guys were so great. You seem to love it, um, which is kind of the point, I guess. So it's great that it's going down well. If you haven't got in touch with us yet about what you think, please do let us know. Um, I mentioned, I think, in the show notes, uh, I'd be interested to hear what format do you like the most. The first one being more kind of Radio 3-esque, second one more long form chat, like this episode you're about to hear. And the third one was a bit more, you know, kind of one-on-one interview, um, but, you know, still not taking it too seriously. Um, so let me know. I'd love to hear what you think. If you haven't already, do tell your friends. That's the basically how these things get about, really. Also, if you're feeling particularly keen, you can review us on iTunes. Uh, That also does help in a meaningful way. So thank you. I'm going to shut up and I'll uh, I'll hand you over to um, previous me who forgot to record (laughs) this intro. Today, I'm chatting to two writers, one a reviewer and one a script writer. We get knee deep into reviewing, asking the big questions like, what is the point of reviewing? So pretty deep. How do you get into it uh, career wise? And Hugh also reveals the writing scheme that most opera reviews follow, which I found really interesting. We also touch on imposter syndrome in classical music, and whether in fact that guy really has heard Barbaroli's recording from 1950-something when he drops it into conversation. In the second part of the episode, we reveal that our reviewer, Hugh Morris, is also in fact a composer, and collaborated with our writer, George Afonso, on a piece for No Dice in 2019. As well as playing excerpts of the piece throughout and in full at the end of the episode, we talk about the piece's inception, accents, and the role of humour in music. So without further ado, here is Hugh and Georgia for a COVID-19 free chat about reviewing, imposter syndrome, and their piece, You'll Write Pet. Um, Thank you both for coming on the No Dose podcast. I wondered if you could just tell us what you've been up to today, Hugh, what, what a day in the life of Hugh is like. So I was teaching trombone in Trafford and then I was teaching the piano in Sale. Um, and before that, I was finishing off a commission that I have from the Devon Philharmonic Orchestra. That's been today. Mm. And, uh, and what have you been up to today, Georgia? Well, I have been doing my admin, digitally, job? my day job, running bits of admin and for a charity. Mm-hmm. Then I've also been clearing up from my last play. Yeah. How yeah. did it go? This is Runway, right? Runway, mm-hmm. my play that I took to Manchester for its final resting place, probably. <laughs> Basically, I'm paying everyone back their expenses. That's, mm-hmm. my, that's, that's what I'm doing. Yeah. yeah. You're um, living the kind of one size fits all creator role of uh, accountant, manager, I, director, I'm writer. Just putting more bullet points on the old CV and then starting on the new things. So that's what I'm doing. Yeah? Yes. So you've got writing, directing, acting admin. as well. Admin, okay. of course. Yeah. <laughs> Georgia is the manager for I'm No Dice. So no absolutely Dice. admin. Yeah. Yeah. Theatre, film, music, young people. <laughs> nice. I like the summary. I like the that summary. That is my bio. <laughs> <laughs> so the other thing that you do is reviewing, isn't it, Hugh? You've got quite a bit of work that way recently. Just to fill in the last the last piece of the picture? Yeah, so I started off 
reviewing when I was in I wanted to go to a couple more gigs but think about them in a slightly different way and I've always enjoyed writing I started writing for Bark Track and then found myself with a little bit more time post-university so I went down to London and did a course uh, down there which was really good and I got to go to London Jazz Festival and now I'm writing for Jazzwise magazine um, and going up to Gateshead soon to review the Jazz Festival which will be nice to be back in the northeast where it all began mm-hmm. yeah and I'm um, starting to move away from doing reviews into more features interviews and and that sort of thing could i ask what the the move away from reviews <laughs> it's mostly financial oh okay <laughs> I'd, um nothing wrong with that yeah so the the way that i cut my teeth in a very <laughs> i don't know it's like the most liberal sort of cutting of teeth ever in like a classical music <laughs> sort of like concert hall um the way that I did that was by reviewing for Bark Track and I would get loads of requests for reviews through and I would do about one a month maybe and it would mean that I would get to go to a concert, get decent tickets, improve my writing and get a decent editor to look over it and that was great until I got to the point where I was like oh I'm actually doing quite a lot of this writing off my own back and I realised partly through the little bit of a course that I did in London, that the money and the way that you sort of break into doing the big reviews, like Guardian Music Critic or those sorts of pieces, is by being an epi features person who really wants to write about, uh, I want to write about this, or I'm really interested in this, or I want to interview this person. And people who are dishing out music reviews and stuff just expect it to be done. That's kind of what the established people do. So moving a little bit towards doing features and interviews and that sort of stuff, yeah. Right, okay. So that's the kind of career path if you're interested in writing about music is you're going to start on reviews and then... When you say peppy, do you mean slightly more sharply angled pieces is that part of that yeah a little bit they always want some sort of angle i think that's been one interesting way that my writing has changed from coming out of a university world where everything is very kind of calm and considered and thoughtful and then suddenly you don't have enough words to really be that thoughtful so yeah they're they're always looking for angles and new and edgy stuff that's That's so interesting i think what you said about uni being a more considered place because I think I've had the absolute opposite trajectory as that whereas like when I was at uni I think I was like I am gonna be so edgy and make a point in my essays and things I was like this is gonna blow their minds and it did not (laughs) and (laughs) and like now I'm so much more on the fence about things which is probably what what the whole point of it was but I do get what you mean that people want like an opinion when they're paying you for writing yeah and it's a weird trajectory for me, coming down from, from writing massive 12,000-word tome on a really specific subject to suddenly being like a three-sentence email that says, yeah, that looks great, can you do 300 words by this date and we'll pay you this much? It's just like, ah, wow, okay, <laughs> fine. Um, yeah, it's, it's just learning to just chop it down. And through that, I found I've got more angles and taken more risks than I potentially would have done at university. Mm. I mean, this is this could be a whole other podcast about reviewing because I think reviewing in itself is a really interesting thing. Mm. And like, what is what what are we getting from it? Yeah, and it's interesting how the review exists, even though it's still three hundred words for theatre or opera or music it plays just a completely different role in in each, and especially theatre press nights and seem to be so like for example like i mean i can turn up to a bbc philharmonic gig and they will be playing a really interesting program and they've got an international soloist and a famous conductor and it'll be in the bridgewater hall and i'll be there in the sort of allotted press seats and there's just a whole row and there's me um writing about (laughs) it and i'm the only person who sort of turns up to that whereas i've been to one press night for like an opera thing and it's just a completely different sort of experience. Well, I mean, Sarah and I ended up at the press night for Giselle. Giselle, yeah. Giselle. And um, the ballet uh, at the palace a few years ago off the back of someone who lent us their press tickets. <laughs> and 
um, it was, we did not know that this was a fancy <laughs> affair. <laughs> we turned up in our, I think I was like, just came from the school and I had no makeup on. I was really, I looked pretty knackered. <laughs> Sarah looked very cool, but neither mm. of us looked very um, pressy <laughs> in the way. But the, I mean, it was a big deal to to be in the reviewing spot for yeah. the for that ballet whereas um i yeah i can completely believe that there are music gigs that don't yeah, yeah sort of i anything. had i had absolutely the, the exact same experience i briefly was part of english national opera's response scheme which gets young reviewers and critics down and gets them to write about their experiences and one of the first ones that i went to with that was oh it was like the second production of harrison burt whistle's the mask of orpheus which is just like a four hour long massive thing. Four hours. Yeah. I didn't realise. Two, two, two in- I read your review for it. Yeah, two interval sort of thing. <laughs> and um I remember going down and um I wasn't really sure what to wear. I've been to the opera before, but in sort of like concert halls, and there's a different opera etiquette, I feel. Mm. Um, but, but this also was ENO as well, which yeah, is. Yeah, exactly, yeah, which uh, is a traditionally one of the most accessible opera companies. I was going to say, for those who don't know that, I yeah. was like, what yeah. is ENO's brand? Because I don't know what ENO's yeah. brand Oh, well, no, they've they rebranded with a a thinner font recently so that okay. that reaches the masses Wait, there's more. another podcast sorry that sounds that really cynical Joe. but they, they they have like a it really good accessible Joe look going analyzing on analyzing fonts <laughs> yeah. of various companies but apart from their actual brand branding what is so they're accessible you can turn up in your kegs so yeah i think the idea with english national opera originally it was set up as a counterbalance to the royal opera house at covent garden and right. committed to widening access to opera right. and um and they're, they're always, big on operas in english aren't they yeah so they, yeah. they've always done um uh, operas in english and they have very cheap concert tickets and lots of schemes like the eno bayless scheme which was like one of the first like community outreach projects in the uk anyway i was down at eno and i was wearing my stripey breast on t-shirt thing which i thought looked quite smart i was um, gonna say you're not but it's, like it's, <laughs> i think that's okay yeah so i thought it was okay and i was sitting amongst the other bits of the press who i all i follow all of them on twitter just to see what they were all about and i what they were wearing yeah and, <laughs> yeah. and so how much brass on yeah. just checking checking and, all the clothes and, on the selfies yeah <laughs> and it was just like it was the shirt and tie brigades oh um, no and um and tie and <laughs> and, and the, tie. yeah and the thing the thing is just with, whipped tie over your brassle <laughs> <laughs> um <laughs> And the thing is with the response scheme, so lots of the critics for all of the dailies and stuff, they got quite knocked with the scheme because it essentially took one of their two tickets that they were allotted and gave it to some oik off the street like me. And, uh, <laughs> um, and the most oik of the, I know, of the I people off the street. I just love that you are the oik. Um, and yeah. yeah, so they gave it to me. <laughs> I think that it says a lot, doesn't it? Yeah. It says a lot. <laughs> Yeah, I know. Um, so they gave it to a person like me and I could just feel all of these eyes like burning into the... And I was oh, like... No. He didn't know. even wear a suit. Yeah. I, yeah. I was 30 years younger than all of the other people who I were, bet they had, all just thought you were really cool. I bet mm. they were like, I wish I could rock up in my Where did stripes. you get that from? <laughs> oh my gosh. I, I bet that's... I'm sure that's what they were thinking. I remember once I read this article that someone had written she saw the headline and she knew that that person didn't have enough words for that topic. Just having enough words to fully explain yourself without having to cut yourself so short that you're then open season in a way. I've been lucky not to have to write for anything so far that I don't believe at least in the heart of it. But I think when you don't care that much about it, I mean, imagine reviewing something that you're sort of like, it was so, so like, do you know what I mean? I I can imagine that's quite hard. Yeah, those are definitely the most difficult ones. And you can tell what is really, really amazing and what you just would never see again and thought that it was absolutely hopeless. It's the bit in between that's the most difficult, Mm. for sure. On my own level, I relate to that from when 
Sarah and I have done call outs and things like that or when I've ever been a reader for things that you get very used to reading quite good pretty good stuff and this is what has given me like a lot of confidence when I've done submissions to things where I don't get the opportunity from it you end up as a reader reading a lot of stuff that's not bad like it's not bad but it's also like you're reading so much I had to kind of catch myself in the middle of a concert or and just go, oh no, you have to be critically engaged with this. Mm. You have to really be listening because it's like you say, there's lots of stuff that is pretty good mm. and lots of people who will happily accept pretty good. But I think it's one of the reasons why I do reviewing is to cut through that and to make sure that critical voices are still heard and that we can all do a little bit better. And make sure that the art and the music and the theatre and stuff that we're doing, that we push ourselves to do that. Old biddies shook their heads as small boys shouted and sweared, picked the phone off the floor and lobbed it hard at a hedge. He heard a yowl, then another, then another. Small boy stepped over tentatively as he pulled branches back to find a black cat upset and dizzy. She was black with a white patch on her left back paw, sore spot on her skull. She was small and scrawny and smelly and curious and terrified at the Samsung 8 that had entered her territory. Sorry, he said, and she yowled again. Bit of a left field question here, Fifi, but do you find it, what are the differences between responding to text? Because I know you've done some opera. What's the difference between responding to text and then responding to a performance as, as a reviewer? Or are they just completely different things? Um, yeah, two different sorts of kettles of fish when you're comparing like an orchestral concert to an opera concert, I suppose. I quite like writing about opera and it's funny, you can go through lots of opera reviews, or at least I have, and you can see the general sort of schemes that writers go through. Because opera is such a fantastic amalgamation of so many different, like there's not just music and there's there's movement and choreography and lighting and sound and all of these sorts of things together um a reviewer will pick one mm. and circle it and they will say oh yeah the lighting was not to my taste and that detracts from the whole thing for example um which i don't know i've seen a couple of those reviews and i think it's a little bit of a cop-out i think really well-written reviews of symphony orchestra concerts are quite difficult to come across just because lots of the published things in the dailies just cover like new works like a macmillan piece or or like an unsuk chin piece or whatever yeah um there's lots of column space given to that but yeah really well written stuff about things that happen in every orchestral concert are really difficult to find and yeah i'm trying to do that <laughs> and i don't know not really succeeding at the moment but there's still time it takes it's it takes young. time doesn't it to make it's like a mastery isn't it like mastering a review so i mean of course that takes yeah. time yeah ten thousand hours do ten thousand hours yeah. do ten thousand hours yeah 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 ten thousand hours. actually a myth by malcolm yeah, Rappen, yeah. yeah. but i mean also not a myth yeah, yeah. i think there is isn't just a lot of hours there's a lot of yeah. value in that probably, idea yeah. 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 yeah and i think there is it is an age thing as well it's a really intimidating place to like firstly to be in a concert hall just generally if you're not used to that sort of surrounding it can be really terrifying and then you add the the pressure of having to think critically about it and then write about it afterwards it can be a really nerve-wracking experience and then you suddenly in my case 30 years younger than the people who are sitting around you and you feel a massive sort of imposter syndrome just because of the age gap and the number of performances that other people have clocked up you know mm. um i think that's such a huge thing in the music probably in any arts world actually or anything like that but i think i certainly feel whenever i walk into most rooms that are to do with any art subjects that I have not properly engaged with the background of where this is placed. And I've actually done a music and drama degree and I've had a very privileged start in this world, but I still wouldn't be able to tell you the various symphonies and this, that, you know, I just yeah. wouldn't, I don't have the context in the way that and I can't imagine what that would feel like if you go into these places when you don't even have what I have because what I have is still more than like someone who's not been introduced to any classical music any ballet any uh, I think things. a lot of it is to do with the I don't know I because it's something I want to overcome as an ensemble I'm very aware of how I feel about it myself and 
the presumption that you should know this stuff already almost stops me from listening to it because it feels like less of a pleasure and more of a, a task like something I should should have done already like it's like it mm. almost feels like a telling off that yeah, I, that I, I haven't listened so to all true. of Beethoven's symphonies a already. telling off yeah, yeah that is exactly what it feels like in terms of sort of you must have read you must have heard you must have seen and it does feel like a telling off because if you must have and you haven't Mm. It feels, you're in the wrong automatically yeah, yeah it feels crap yeah yeah i think as well often a little bit skeptical working in those sorts of circles i do wonder if it is just posturing or bluster a little bit the accusers who say oh well you must have heard bob rolly's recording from 1950 something <laughs> um as just a as a little bit of a yeah as a bit of a posture I've been asked those sorts of questions and I like to do my research before review so I'm able to have yeah some sort of context but yeah there have been lots of times where I've been in those circles and it's just really off-putting to lots of kind of one-upmanship that I Mm -hmm. really yeah Yeah. I don't like and I think it's a bit of a barrier to new people coming in. I think it's just a shame because I think if you turn it on its head I've had so many really nice, exciting conversations where I've said, oh, I'm interested in this or I just discovered this. And very generous people have said, oh, if you like that, have you heard this? Yes. Or Mm -hmm. I've just been listening to this or whatever. And that's a completely different conversation. But if someone says you must have heard or, you know, obviously, you know, that's when it that's when it blocks people, I think. And it makes things feel incredibly inaccessible. I feel like I will never catch up with, mm. you know. Because it's so big, isn't people. it? There's just, yeah. a, just a kind so of mind-blowingly large amount of classical pieces that you maybe should know. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> but then, okay, so there are all these really great works out there that I want to hear because I've heard people talk about them or they, they've come up a little bit. Where do I go for that? Probably Classic FM. But maybe you don't like the delivery style of Classic FM. So, like, where do you fall in terms of where to find this material? Yeah, I have to say, with regards to Classic FM, I listened to Classic FM semi-religiously through sixth form. Once I decided that I wanted to go to university to study music, um, I fell into the same into the same pitfall that I think quite a lot of people do when coming to university and they just, they think that everyone else will know all of these string quartets. And I've got a little journal that I bought from Paper Chase on the first day of year 12. Aww. Yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> um, and, uh, if and no one loves you yet. <laughs> and I've got listening notes from all of these random programs that I listen to on Classic FM and it will be interesting to go back through it and do a survey of all of the things that I ended up listening to. I ended up with a pretty decent knowledge of the Russian symphonic tradition, so Tchaikovsky, Rachmaninoff, Prokofiev, those sorts of people. And that sort of warped my worldview about what music was and Mm. what sort of stuff was around. And there was that period of music from the Romantic era stretching into 1940s, 1950s, and then into film music, which Classic FM plays so predominantly that I ended up coming away from sixth form absolutely in love with all of this stuff and wanting to write like, mm. like Rachmaninoff and what have you. Yeah, and um, yeah. yeah, exactly. And I was writing quite a few tonally, modally sort of pastiches as a composer and then came to university and it was just like crash, bang, wallop. Oh my gosh, what is this sort of play? <laughs> So I've um, um, ended up, yeah, just like getting in my own head a little bit again about it. And I was like, oh, no, all of these people know all of this different music now. Oh, God, I'm going to have to change again. Um, what do I listen to? What do I listen to? Yeah. Um, do, you, do you enjoy listening to all of this classic FM, then? all these different pieces? Um, what was that experience? I think... I enjoyed listening to it for a specific purpose of sitting down and learning what things sounded like and being able to pick tunes out. And then the decent thing about classical FM is just things crop up pretty yeah, regularly. Um, and yeah, and yeah, to sort of build familiarity and exactly. Yeah. And that um, kind of recognition you were talking about, George, actually, where you're like, yeah. oh, like this must be by that composer because it sounds really similar to that one piece that I do know the name of. And yes, exactly. Yeah. I should it say also, way, I'm I absolutely crap at doing this with plays, of which I have <laughs> way more knowledge of, you know, and yeah. I'm, I'm your best person if you want to do like a, an anonymous submission because <laughs> I will not know. <laughs> Whether this is written by a specific person. I remember my interview at York, they put this piece 
of writing in front of me and they said, we're not going to ask you, sorry, York, but this is what you did. Um, they said, <laughs> you did this. <laughs> they, <laughs> they said, we're not going to ask you who it's by. And then in the interview, <laughs> the first thing she said was, so do you, it doesn't matter if you don't, but do you know who wrote this? Okay. And now I know who wrote it, and I know who I said, and I can't remember. I can't remember the exact person I said, but I was probably about a a, a good half Mill. century out, <laughs> at least, um, of who wrote it. And um, half century, you yeah, know, you could do worse than a half century, yeah. really. Depends and I mean, considering I probably only read, <laughs> yeah. I probably only read about four playwrights at the time, so I was just taking a really ill-informed guess. But you know, I just I remember that now. Small boy put her in his parka and carried her home. He let himself in and she followed through, going straight to the room where she knew there'd be food. Suppose you can stay for a bit, he said, pulling himself onto the ledge, found the tuna can, cut his finger wedging it open, shouted blue murder, but the cat unperturbed went straight for the fish. Wait, it might hurt you. He poured it into a dish. Just in terms of like the, the process, like the kind of the creation of the piece... Casting your minds back to September of last year. (laughs) So it began with, you got got picked from our call for scores. Georgia was not going to be on this particular project, The Things He Left Behind. The Things That Happened to Me. That's what we should have called it. (laughs) No, Um, I, I ended up being on it for various reasons, but I have written on other No Dice collabs yeah and so the general theme of the concert was it was a collaboration with the international anthony burgess foundation and we looked at their archive i think there were there six of us there were six pieces and five pairs and one right yes so there was the one the one piece without a writer for a bit of variation and they all looked at an object each from the archive um so the picture that you guys had was anthony burgess with his wife walking a dog right yeah and once you got the image, once you decided on it, because you decided on the image, didn't you, Georgia? The writers got to, got to decide. It, yeah, yeah. yeah. What what drew you to the image? Dibs. Um, what drew me to the image? I, I Is it mean, purely wanting a dog? <laughs> <laughs> I just want a dog. Um, no, well, I mean, I feel very comfortable writing from other perspectives that are non-human. I already had written something for No Dice about a mm. slug. Yeah, Dilly the Slug. Dilly yeah. the Slug. It's become the georgia Fonso brand piece a little bit this was not written for an animal themed concert no. it was, <laughs> it was just, not written in the response to, to write the, whatever I wanted. the slug archive <laughs> it was a slug no i just i'm very character driven that's a true thing i'm a very character driven with what i write and so there are various objects on offer such as keys and List of objects lost to water damage. List of objects lost, which which a lot of things. Every cards. single option had a real poetry to it, which mm, was really a real story. There as was, well. I mean, it genuinely was a hard choice because there were lots of really interesting things, and you could have just gone on and on. on. But you know, give me a dog, and I'll write about a cat. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry about that. Anything that allows me an option to write a sort of new voice. Yeah, I'm happy with that. And so you'd chosen the image. And then you were paired up with Hugh. I forced it on Hugh, yeah. What was your initial impression of the image? Did you have any kind of creative... You like, oh, (laughs) (laughs) I I thought it was an interesting image. I Honestly, in the first instance, I thought we were a little short-changed just in terms of the sheer size of the thing. So we had a picture that's about the size of a matchbox versus... Um, other people who got the death mask of Anthony Burgess mm. and about the size of a, a face, of a head, uh, which is yeah. The, yeah, the size, <laughs> which is about the size of a head. It. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that initial thought sort of shaped the other responses that I later had. In that it was a relatively mundane, everyday sort of picture that we were tasked with making a, an interesting story out of. And I think on a similar note to George, I'm quite character driven in terms of my music and I have done bits of pieces of opera and small incidental music for plays and things like that. I like creating stories and using my imagination and seeing what that might sound like musically. So um, from that perspective, it was really great to work with someone who was equally (laughs) as character driven and 
imaginative as from Georgia. That perspective. <laughs> <laughs> from other perspectives, let's Otherwise, not talk about it was a them. <laughs> the piece is called "You're Right, Pet," which I've done a terrible job right, of introducing. Pet. Yeah. So not it's you're like right, "Y'all right, Pet." Y'all right, right, Pet. 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 <laughs> So you said there's you. a, you're actually there's a, from the area that the uh, original piece. So I've got a Sibelius document from my first sketch and it has, I think, four different spellings. Of, <laughs> so you're right, Pat. And then there's a sort of, <laughs> there's a Geordie <laughs> version of it, which is Yal Reese Pat, which is like with a double E in it. And then there's like, yeah, right, Pat. <laughs> yeah. And it goes through that. So I think what we were trying to get at um is not not southern is what is well no what I think important. well there's a multiple issues which here. leads us neatly onto <laughs> what just my accent your accent in the piece let's let's address the elephant in the room georgia yeah it's a big northern elephant i um <laughs> i i'm happy to address this um i've lived in manchester for six seven years and i'm from oxfordshire which you can probably hear nuances of <laughs> throughout. Really? <laughs> um, my accent has forever changed in the wind. I have been told mm. that it shows that I'm a good listener. That's what I've been told. Really? By other people. Oh. By psychiatrists, my mum. And, <laughs> <laughs> and, <laughs> and let me tell you, it is much better in this scenario than it is when I'm with my west indian family <laughs> where it it changes there as well so it basically my accent is constantly fluctuating but also i was interesting it was nice talking to some of the other writers on this project who talks about when they write and they speak their writing because you know some writers like i write for theater and i write things that i never expect for me to say i'm fully planning to put an actor through <laughs> having to say the lines and never me but when you write for something that you're going to say yourself I still find myself writing in a voice I have to write in a voice when I'm writing whether or not that's my natural voice I think I do find myself writing in a slight why um what I find as an easier voice to write in which is a slightly more lyrical voice and that is probably just influenced by the fact that a lot of the writers I've discovered I didn't start properly writing until I came to Manchester and therefore a lot of the writers I have been influenced by have probably been from the north and I I just think that has has an impact on the way I write and and I'm not going to start saying a poem that is set in Manchester about Manchester in a completely sort of mm, I'm, I'm not yeah. going to bring out my Oxford accent for we that went, moment we went darling. down the Oxford Ridge yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I will save that for when I God knows when that's useful but I'm sure I'm sure there are many articles maybe, maybe in a, when in that's a comedy useful. sketch yes, yeah. exactly. <laughs> the exactly. on the phone voice <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly yeah. that's my phone voice um, no but um basically mm, yeah it makes a lot of sense it makes a lot yeah. of sense. and from my perspective it was quite nice to have a writer who was willing to engage with those sorts of quandaries mm, given that yeah I especially mean, in opera yeah exactly and um i personally as a person whose voice fluctuates quite a lot it was quite nice to hear that somebody was also feeling those sorts of problems but also yeah it's an interesting thing about finding your own compositional voice I I definitely haven't found a single one at the moment and all of the projects that I'm taking on at the moment I try to set out and do something completely different in each one to build a little bit of a toolkit and see w- which things I like and which things I really don't like. I think that the No Dice collabs are quite useful for that actually because we the other hat that I have on for No Dice when I'm not being a, a writer is the management side of it and Joe and I do pick the couplings for no dice based off the applications and and that's always a really interesting thing to do and it's always really exciting to us to see how those then play out because we we often don't really know people that well at that point at all so we're really going off tiny tiny glimmers of something that we think oh that might work together nicely and it's really fun to do. And, and actually, so far, we, we've had a really good well. experience. Yeah. yeah. And to add to that, it's pushing people out of their artistic comfort zones, but in a really nice, friendly, 
um, controlled, quite relaxed sort of manner, which I found was what I gained most from it. And plus, yeah, just interesting briefs and things that make you think. I thought so much about that Anthony Burgess commission and I came out of uni having done lots of composition where I had to write to a brief and I never really understood where that might slot in and then suddenly I came out and it was September and it was like oh here's an interesting brief that you can go away and be creative about and I was like oh it's cool great <laughs> yeah. oh thanks you <laughs> that's yeah that's that's what they're there for yeah yeah. So yeah, getting a little bit more specific now, perhaps towards your piece. One of the things I found the most fun about the piece is the theatrics, the the conductor, me waving my arms around it like two hundred and twenty six BPM to about twenty bars of silence, just waggling around in four four. <laughs> yeah. So I was in an interesting sort of mood when I was writing this piece and lots of my music is quite conceptual if it's instrumental it's it, it doesn't really ever engage with pure music that doesn't have uh, either a, a programmatic element or like an inspiration or a conceptual element and I try to make a serious point in perhaps less than serious ways um, this piece had various inspirations some of the theatrics that Joe talks about were born from a, an experience that I had over the summer where I was playing in a in a concert in France in this tiny little village. Um, so we were doing Haydn's Creation and there was a violinist sitting in front of me and anybody who's familiar with orchestral playing and sitting in a string section knows that occasionally you get a back desk driver in that there's somebody who's not appointed as a leader of a section but who will has obviously got ideas above their station or really wants to show that they're, they know what they're doing. And this was uh, this woman and she was overbowing everything and the theatrics on show in a relatively run-of-the-mill performance of Haydn's creation was was incredible and I was just <laughs> I was perplexed for the whole six days that we were rehearsing and then the concert by the amount of overbowing and really really indicating with bows and and all of the movement that that she was doing and she sort of created a, a different drama um <laughs> to this piece that um is a is a staple of choral society rap and stuff and I thought that would be an interesting point to try and get through in this piece for No Dice is how to create a different sort of complementary drama to what was happening in the music or what was happening in George's text that didn't necessarily require any um, sonic sort of realization so I was very specific about the way that I wanted the performance to bow for example so it was for string trio and there was really really massive bow strokes for really tiny musical gestures and everything was sort of over exaggerated to create or create in my head a, a different drama or like a yeah a drama that you sort of had to gain in the moment uh, mm. and that's what because I like that about the music is that it wasn't a film score-esque complementary underbedding of the text. It really coexisted with it and complemented it, but in a very independent way. And I found that very interesting. I wonder how you found that to to speak <laughs> over and, and how... Was that what you expected Hugh to come up with? Uh, I didn't know what to expect from Hugh exactly, apart from that I knew that he was a... A comedian of sorts. <laughs> I feel like you, you definitely have that humorous There's aspect humor. in common, don't There's you? Humor. Um, cut it out. And, um, <laughs> if you say humorous quickly, it's humorous. Humorous, exactly. Humorous. And I'll, I'll link the BuzzFeed article. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> he's actually already I've famous. I've actually guys. Um, made it on BuzzFeed, uh, guys. He's uh, on BuzzFeed. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I didn't really know what to expect exactly from Hugh apart from a, a level of playfulness maybe mm. but um no it was a surprise it was a genuinely exciting surprise and it was very good for me I think I enjoy dominating <laughs> any situation when I get to speak <laughs> including this podcast um so you've been, you've been doing very well <laughs> I know I feel very restrained um so <laughs> 
and I've worked um, shout out to Sophie Sully on previous yeah she's previous, been your main previous she collaborator she has hasn't been she? my one and only delightful composer who I've worked with before and and it was just very terrifying for me to be working with a new pair of hands and it was just such a delight actually to find just a completely different style because I cannot write anything where I don't make some sort of joke within it and that is probably challenging to some people and some people who want to write really really serious stuff mm, not everyone can can get comedic timing in music you know it's yeah, a skill yeah it? comedic timing in music is hard and because no dice is always going to be first and foremost a live event and it's um despite our prolific podcast output apart from the podcast (laughs) but that's what's really exciting from no dice concerts is watching Mm -hmm. the performers and um you know it was not a poet with some musicians in the background it was an ensemble piece and that was really exciting to me but I, but I was taken aback and I didn't know. Mm-hmm. And then I turned up at the rehearsal and my bloody violinist is sneezing <laughs> next to me. <laughs> uh, yeah, so they, just to clarify so what was happening in the piece, not only were there dramatic bowing things happening, but players actually vocally did things and sneezed and... and mm. There's a few lines about how the the mother is allergic to the cat, right? That is yeah, the, we the main animal. Maybe explain that the story of the piece ends up being about a little boy in Manchester who grows up and uh, is sort of not really massively being looked after in a well, not he's not being looked after, but his mum isn't around all the time. He ends up befriending a cat, and then his mum is allergic to the cat. It's it's a very it's a very day to day story if you were just to say mm. if if the yeah. boy was to grow up he'd say oh yeah I had a cat for a bit but in the time of the tale it's the cat is very much the most important thing for the boy yeah and I think it's almost lovingly accompanied in that sense that because there's such a kind of familial feel to the story a tenderness to it perhaps because it is about this younger character there's a certain degree of almost parental care towards that character at least that's how I I picked up on it and I feel like the music really complements that in its playfulness maybe even a playfulness suitable for the age of the character you know with the sneezes with the kind of yeah I wanted to get that idea of a bit playful and I wanted people to have fun I think sometimes the I've been to quite a few not no dice concerts for sure of course but um but other new music ensembles and there's a haughty laugh that goes round occasionally Um, (laughs) oh that the the end of the piece pizzicato note yes exactly yeah 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 um it's really annoying when you feel it in yourself as well you're like oh that I don't uh, know. I can, uh, yeah, I can I feel know. it bubbling up the, the, the slightly <laughs> yeah, I'm waiting laughter. for it. And it was like, ha, ha, ha. Yes, a good musical joke. But I wanted to get away from those sorts of new music, comedy, post legacy sorts of things and try and make some new ones that were a little bit more in the moment that people might have a genuinely like personal reaction to and that might startle or people might find funny or that people might find hate, but they might, they just would have a reaction to it. But yeah, I think overall what i wanted to get from the piece was just a bit of fun i think i mean let's be honest why do we ever do this exactly (laughs) yeah if you can't if you can't have fun while you're doing it yeah it was definitely nice as a performer that i was not the only one on the stage making it of myself and that is the joy of any performing for me not not that you make it of yourself but that there's a level of risk and there's a level of there's a level of fun there has to be a level of fun otherwise i mean God, why else would you get up there? (laughs) I genuinely don't know. (laughs) Well, thank you guys so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you, you, Hugh. Thank you, Georgia. You've been wonderful to talk to. And I really love the piece. So we'll play it now at at the end of the podcast. Once we do have a film of it up, I will definitely link to that in the show notes as well because it's definitely well worth seeing the visual side of it, you know, mm. which we have talked about a bit already. So yeah, thank you so much. I'll see you guys at the next podcast. And here is... You're right, pet. <laughs> <laughs>
by Hugh Morris and Georgia Afonso. found a cat when his mum wasn't home. After school, he'd been sitting alone on the swings trying to win at Ninja King when some kid showed. He kept his eyes glued to his phone. Hey, Lona, what makes that? Small boy didn't answer, didn't glance up. He kept quiet, stared down, but they didn't stop and the other boys were laughing. Don't you have any friends? Little Lona, little Larry. What's that shit you're wearing? Bet he stole it. And he started to glare, couldn't help himself, stood up, Mum, Dad got it, me swear. It was the worst thing he could have done. Now they knew that he cared and he knew that he'd slipped up. The kid flipped up the phone up out of his hands and it smacked down, cracked down on the ground. The kid shrieked and his eyes pricked and his face went redder and his eyes felt wetter and they shouted, cry baby, cry baby. shook their heads as small boys shouted and sweared, picked the phone off the floor and lobbed it hard at a hedge. He heard a yowl, then another, then another. Small boy stepped over tentatively as he pulled branches back to find a black cat upset and dizzy. She was black with a white patch on her left back paw, sore spot on her skull. She was small and scrawny and smelly and curious and terrified at the Samsung 8 that had entered her territory. Sorry, he said, and she yowled again. Small boy put her in his parker and carried her home. He let himself in and she followed through, going straight to the room where she knew there'd be food. Suppose you can stay for a bit, he said, pulling himself onto the ledge, found the tuna can, cut his finger wedging it open, shouted blue murder, but the cat unperturbed went straight for the fish. Wait, it might hurt you. He poured it into a dish. Small boy used his best voice. His choice of words were careful but belligerent, as he reminded her consistently that she had had a dog, ma'am. Didn't you say that, ma'am? Didn't you say you had a dog, ma'am? Didn't you say a dog when you were young? When you said that, didn't you say that, ma'am? He watched her waver, watched her shoulders lift to a shrug, watched her lips quiver as she sneezed. Once, then again, then into a fit as her nose ran, she batted him and the cat away. Get her out! She sprayed, eyes red, skin itching. It's a monkey stray! Sorry, small boy said for the second time that day. about the cut on his hand, but small boy wouldn't talk, wished she'd stop, all these questions were boring, wanted her to just look at his drawing, but she wouldn't ignore him, eventually he had to tell her about the cat that he'd found when his mum wasn't home. At the end of the day, the teacher scowled at mum, and mum scowled at the teacher, and the boy scowled at both of them, and shouting started, and small boy ran, and the shouting started to follow him, so small boy ran faster and faster and faster. The small boy found the cat, at the back door. Red eyes saw from the wind. He let her in, not caring about what his man would say. Opened the tuna tin, careful this time. Put down a dish and sat stroking the cat on the floor. That's where mum found him and her heart gave in. Went to the chemist, got some tablets and tried not to mind the scratch in her throat and the wheezing when that furry so-and-so sat near her. Cause that small boy's smile was dearer than any day without sneezing.
Small boy and the cat went everywhere together. Or everywhere a cat and boy can go together. To the park and down the alleys, in the streets and on the walls, and at night at his feet she would fall asleep and purr. Even as the boy got bigger, as small boys grow tall, the cat still followed him wall to wall, and he still patted her on her head when he got in, still treated her with fish in a tin, still wanted her at the foot of the bed as the light grew dim. Thank you. 